But to look at this objectively and look at science and look at the data behind that, what happens to the body when you mouth breathe? Because I had been told by numerous doctors, ENTs across the board, nose, mouth, doesn't matter, just breathe, forget about it, relax. It's totally false, 100% false. And the science was very clear. Hi, I'm Zoe. Hi, I'm Erica. Hey, Erica. This is our podcast. Well, what do we do on the podcast? Uh, we talk to wellness experts. Well, what do we talk about? Mm, wellness stuff. And why are we doing this? Because we want to have an inclusive conversation about things that you can actually use and apply to your life. Right. We don't think that wellness should feel preachy. We think it should feel like everybody can participate. That's right. So if you like what you hear, tell a friend. Give us five stars. They're all free. All of the above. All of the above. And think of us as your navigators on the bumpy highway to well. Hey. <laughs> oh, there, there's definitely like a who knows joke in here somewhere that I can't quite figure out. So truth be told, I might have like a little like data crush. As in D-A-D-A or is in D-A-T-A? Data. As in like, I, first of all, cannot believe. <laughs> that just got real weird. How much longer, like how long we could actually sit and talk about breathing. But I mean, that was like 65 minutes that I could have doubled very easily. But the oh. amount of knowledge and like recall that this man has for facts and for like names. And he was not reading. He was not like citing a study by so-and-so. It's just all, I was just like yeah. amazed at how much information is right there. I, I wonder if that comes from breathing too. <sighs> I'm sure he's got all that cognitive benefit. Um, uh, we're talking about is uh, he's the real deal, man. He's uh, an amazing journalist, and I'm so happy that he took all of his incredible skills and applied them to this oh, much needed area of exploration. Breath. We're talking about breath and breathing and the power of it, and it is just once you know, you really can't unknow, and you literally will never breathe through your nose through your mouth again once you read this book. Yes. Noses are for breathing. Mouths are for eating. If you're not eating, shut your mouth. Or well, if you're talking, that's fine. Talking and singing. And singing. Yes, singing is very therapeutic. Very therapeutic. Um, but, but, you know, he's, he's just such an... He's been so in it for so long. His, uh, his recall, yes, on all the many doctors he's like talked to over the years. It's just... He's a very impressive man. Very impressive. And I've read a lot of... Um, I mean, I've read a lot on breath. <laughs> like, I, I read the book called breathe, which I think is funny because this is called breath. Yes. <laughs> I will just say that breath by James Nestor is incredible. This is the real the deal. Conversation is just, it's the most eye-opening like health conversation that I've had in like decades. Yeah. Or one might say nose opening. Nose opening. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. profound. Yeah. Anyway. It's so fundamental. Anyway, we're going to just stop talking now, but Please do enjoy. Please do enjoy. And take a deep breath. It'll never be the same. Hey, guys. So you may have figured out by now that Zoe and I are huge fans of functional mushrooms. And that's because their benefits are legit from increasing focus and concentration to helping you sleep and probably most importantly, providing incredible support for your immune system. And yes, that is actual science. You can check it out on our blog at earthandstar.com. But who doesn't need a little bit of extra immune support right now if we're being honest? But anyway, the most important thing for you to know actually is that you have to have these fabulous fungi in your system every day in order to reap the benefits. So Earth and Star our new brand, is making it as easy as possible for you to get the amazing benefits of functional mushrooms every day. Like if you've got a serious cold brew habit, there's a can for that. If you love your afternoon matcha latte, then we've got you covered there. And if you're not like G-Love and you're not feeling the cold beverages, then how about a totally delicious dark chocolate bar that also helps you increase focus and concentration while satisfying your sweet tooth? And it pairs super well with red wine. So we at Earth & Star have created as many ways as possible to help you elevate your everyday routine because we are not asking you to add another pill or a powder to your very busy schedule of supplements. We just want it to be as easy and absolutely delicious as possible for you to get some mush love into your life. 
So check us out at earthandstar.com and get 15% off your first order with the code HTW. Officially, let's welcome you, James Nestor, journalist, author of several books, but the most recent, Breath, being the major source of obsession for both Zoe and myself. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks a lot for having me. Hooray! Okay, so I guess the, the obvious question is what prompted you to write this book? We could just jump right in. Yeah, it was never anything that I set out to do to write a book about breathing. And it was when all the pieces of this puzzle started coming together, I was still pretty apprehensive about it because there's so many books about breathing. So specifically how to breathe. Uh, You look at any yoga book, it's going to have about 400 different breathing techniques. All of them have names you can't pronounce. And I thought, what else was there to explore in this world? But as I started talking to more and more researchers, more and more scientists, I realized that there was a story that hadn't been told. It was about how humans have become the worst breathers in the animal kingdom and how that is impacting us on not only our longevity, but it's impacting our health across the board from mental health to physical problems. And this was such a weird story because I wondered why I hadn't heard it before. But it turns out it's been it's been there all along. It's just been hiding in these little strange crevices and academic journals and medical libraries. And so I spent several years in those places uh, trying to find as much about it as, as I could. Yeah, I mean, it seems kind of silly at first glance. You're just like, well, this is the most fundamental thing we do. How is this in any way, shape, or form a pillar of health? But as you discover, there there's a lot more to it. Was I mean, it also I, precipitated by, I mean, just you, you shared a little bit in the book, but it was kind of journalistic curiosity coupled with actually your own, your own personal experiences with like sleep and, and struggling with, with that, right? Or which, which, kind of, which came first? Well, I think they all came at separate times. So I'm in San Francisco and I surf a lot and I work out a lot and I eat the right foods and all that stuff. But I was having constant respiratory problems. And this was several years ago. Uh, I kept getting pneumonia, mild pneumonia and bronchitis. And I just thought this was a normal thing until I went to my doctor. And she said, no, this isn't normal. You shouldn't be getting these things. Why don't you check out a breathing class? And I took her advice and had just the strangest experience in this class. But as a journalist, I'm not going to write a memoir about my my breathing journey. And I actually forgot about that experience for years and years until I met free divers. And these were people who were just rewriting textbooks with, with their abilities. They can hold their breath for seven, eight, nine minutes. They can dive down to 300, 400 feet. No fins, no, no anything, just, just the natural human body. So all of this is not supposed to be possible. And even doctors were saying, you hold your breath over two minutes, you're going to have brain damage. These people, this, you know, there must be an oxygen tank down there. And it just showed me how short-sighted people are uh, and, and how short-sighted we become about the human body's potential. And so after seeing enough of the studies, real studies conducted at top institutions, I thought that there was a much larger story here to be told. And so that's when I really headed out into the field. I thought this was going to be more, a shorter journey than it was, but it took me so many years of just grinding away because you could go and ask one researcher, ask one doctor one question, ask another doctor another question, both at legit institutions. They both say the exact opposite thing. They say, oh, that guy's full of crap. Oh, that guy's full of crap. I said, how am I ever going to find the truth in here when these guys can't agree on, on anything? But it's out there. It was just very well hidden away, several layers deep. It also seems so, I mean, timely is the wrong word and ironic is the wrong word, but like the year 2020 is all about breath. I mean, and you could not have timed that, obviously, but (laughs) it's insane that, you know, we're talking about, you know, the biggest pandemic ever that affects the respiratory system. And we're talking about a cultural pandemic that is directly related to people being literally choked to death. Yeah. Yeah. So... (laughs) I've actually gotten a few few people that have said, oh, you know, very opportunistic to, to release this book in the midst of a pandemic. And it's like, if you guys know anything about book publishing, this thing was in catalogs in September of 2019. <laughs> so it was slated to come out in, in, in May, in May 2020. That's 
those are the facts. So this was a book that I had been working on for for years and years and talking to these researchers who had spent decades in the field and they were pretty frustrated. Be honest, I'm talking about people at Harvard, people at Stanford, that the general public really wasn't paying attention to breathing and all of the downstream effects of breathing incorrectly and how by improving breathing, you can really affect the symptoms of so many chronic diseases. And so it it is ironic that this book happened to come out. It had been slated to come out for six months before then in the midst of a pandemic where people start thinking about breathing because they can't breathe. So it's been absolutely bizarre to us. And it's been quite a roller coaster uh, ever since the book has come out last few months ago. Yeah, it's amazing. So where are you now in your journey personally? Like, and, and, and how did you get there? I mean, you've been at it for quite some time. You want to take us through some, some, some of the beginnings of, of why can't I breathe and what am I going to do about that? Yeah, I think that, you know, I spent several years just trying to be a really objective researcher in this field, which, which I hope, hope I was for, for this book. But you can't help getting connected with some of these people you're writing about and can't help getting connected with what they're saying, some of the practices and techniques. So I started incorporating those into my life. You can only see so many dozens of people who, who have transformed their health through healthy breathing, not want to incorporate these techniques yourself. So the ambition with the book was never to have me as, as a character in this book. And the, the book proposal that you know I, I put together about five or six years ago very clearly does not have me as a character. But as I got deeper into this field, I realized that a lot of people weren't going to do the stuff that I was going to do. And so I had to, for instance, the study at Stanford, uh, there, there's just no way to find someone who's going to stuff crap up their nose for, for 10 I mean, days. you did some pretty funny things. You really so, went there. Yeah. You, and, and the point was, these weren't intended to be stunts or kind of jackass. Oh, look how crazy this is. What we were trying to do is to lull ourselves into a position that 25 to 50% of the population already knows. That's how many people are mouth breathing. Mm-hmm. So, But to look at this objectively and look at science and look at the data behind that, what happens to the body when you mouth breathe? Because I had been told by numerous doctors, ENTs across the board, nose, mouth, doesn't matter. Just breathe, forget about it, relax. Mm-hmm. It's totally false, 100% false. And the science was very clear before, but I kind of wanted to see this personally. And then, and I certainly did over it, over that experiment. Yeah, we are, we are some chronic, I, I have a, a couple of very small mouth breathers that live with me. Um, I'm going to have to start going in at night and just like clipping their mouth closed uh, or taping them as you suggest. But what, I mean, so, so what, I mean, what is the problem with breathing through your mouth? Can we go through some of the the consequences of that, um, as I just did, now I'm getting very self-conscious of my own breathing in this episode. I was going to say, well, I mean, I've not taken a breath through my mouth consciously <laughs> since I started reading this book. It's unbelievable. Well, try writing a, a book about this stuff for, for four years and become a complete neurotic freak. So I'm just like, oh my God, breathe through my own, breathing too much. So it's not, not, a, not a good look. But uh, the point of, of all this stuff is to do something for a little while so it becomes an unconscious habit. You don't want to be walking around with your phone with timers going off, with the pulse oximeter, looking at your CO2. You don't want to be doing any of that. But it's a good training so that once these things become a habit, you don't have to think about it anymore. So with mouth breathing, this is something I never heard about, how injurious it was to the body. But I started talking to Dr. Jayakar Nayak, the chief of rhinology research at Stanford. I, since I'm in the city in San Francisco, Stanford's pretty close. And it's got just this incredible medical library from the top researchers in the world. And he's a nose guy. And he, he started detailing the innumerable benefits of breathing through the nose and started showing me all the science. And no one was refuting this, right? That the science is so clear on it. But no one was really doing it because the message really wasn't out. Because we had been told by so many people that breathing through the nose and the mouth doesn't really matter. So I asked him, I said, since you know how much damage can be caused by breathing through the mouth, you know, why why don't we test it? Um, And and he agreed to that. He put his lab up to that, dedicated a lot of hours to testing it. So in a nutshell, here's the big problem with breathing through the mouth all the time is you are 
breathing in unfiltered air, unhumidified air, unmoistened air, unpressurized air, and you get 20% less oxygen through equivalent breaths through the mouth than you do through the nose. If you think about that throughout the day, you are just destroying yourself very slowly throughout the day by breathing through your mouth. If you live in a city, I know you guys live in a city. I live in a city as well. You're talking about allergens. You're talking about pollutants. All of this stuff is just going into your your lungs uh, untreated, unfiltered at all. And that's why if you look at people with anxiety, if you look at people with asthma, you look at people with other respiratory problems, those populations uh, share in mouth breathing much higher than, than the rest of the population. And I think that there is a direct link between mouth breathing and those conditions. Right. It's more a question of which came first, right? So yeah, like, I think the, the theory would be somebody with asthma, of course, they're going to breathe through their mouth because they can't breathe, but you're arguing that actually they can't breathe because, or they have asthma because they're breathing through their mouth. I think it's, I think it's both things. I don't think it's mutually exclusive to those. I think they, that they both tie together. Mm-hmm. We know that for asthmatics and for people with anxiety and for panic, those populations also breathe too much. That's one of the reasons their mouth breathes. When you're breathing through the mouth, you're often breathing too much. You mm-hmm. tend to, to hyperventilate. When you're breathing through the nose, it's harder. It, there's more pressure. It takes more time. And all this is really good. A lot of people think, oh, I can't get enough oxygen breathing through my nose. Check out a pulse oximeter and watch what happens when you breathe through your nose. There's a good chance you're going to be getting more oxygen by breathing more slowly. This is so counterintuitive. It took me a so while to get my head around it. So, so you, you know, with, with asthmatics, I've met dozens of people who had asthma for, for decades at a time. They were given bronchodilators. They were given steroids. They learned how to take control of their breathing, and they now no longer suffer the symptoms of asthma. So it's, it's simple math, and the science is very clear on this too. But how often are asthmatics taught to control their breathing by, by their doctor? Not very often. <laughs> I see that starting to change now, but so many of these people are so pissed off that they spent the last 30 years unable to walk around the block right. <laughs> because they had asthma. And if they, I'm not saying this is a blanket cure for everyone. Right. Everyone has very specific problems, but I'm saying for most people and most people with asthma, breathing slowly can have a profound effect on, on your health and the symptoms yeah. of asthma. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I developed like seasonal allergies about. 10 years ago, just like a light switch out of nowhere. And, you know, I had been to many, many doctors to discuss it. I mean, not one would ever mention something like, hey, maybe this could lessen your symptoms or maybe this could help you out. Instead, it's like you walk out with like a pound of, you know, prescriptions and like six different vials. Yeah. So it's not, you know, it's it's not necessarily chicken or egg or a blanket cure, but it definitely sounds like it could help alleviate a lot of symptoms, even if you were were born with it or it's, it's you know, yeah. Yeah, and to be clear, those, those drugs work wonders. They're so good at alleviating the, the symptoms of these problems. Uh, you know, bronchodilators work really well. Oral steroids work very well, but they also have really brutal uh, side effects. You take steroids for long enough, you're going to decrease uh, bone density, you're going to be more apt to have autoimmune problems, you're going to be more apt to have depression. I mean, on and on and on. So these things for temporary issues, they work great. And people, I'm not saying people stop taking them, keep taking them. But if you incorporate healthy breathing practices, as the science is very clear on this, you can start to taper off. A lot of people are able to taper off pretty quickly from this stuff because they're breathing efficiently. I mean, you think about asthma or a panic attack. What happens is you get nervous, you can't breathe. So you breathe more and more and you breathe more and you exacerbate this attack. That's what happens. So you cause inflammation throughout your body and and inflammation throughout your throat. You constrict your throat and you have an attack. So uh, again, there's not a lot of controversy about this. It's just that message has not been made very clear for a lot of people suffering from these problems. So those are the respiratory problems, which in some ways feel a little bit intuitive, right? Because you just associate these things with actual breathing. But I found it fascinating that it goes so much deeper than that in terms of other issues that can be addressed by adjusting your breathing, whether it's, there was a whole piece on scoliosis, which just blew my mind. Um, And then once I read, I was like, oh, that totally makes sense. Like, of course, if you actually expand your capacity and your lungs, then of course, the shape of your body might change a bit. But can you talk a little bit more about the sort of 
I guess, the more surprising or, or less intuitive impacts that this can have? Sure. And that, that was one of them. That story was just so bizarre to me. But then, just as you had said, when you start thinking about it, of course it makes sense. We have these two huge balloons right here, right? For, for an adult male, it takes up about six liters, six or seven liters. So your posture is going to affect your breathing and your breathing is going to affect your posture. You can take a, a deep breath and you notice what happens to your posture. If you're hunched over all this, like, like this, like so many people, breathing right here, your posture is terrible. It's awful. So she was an extreme version of that, Katerina Schroth. And when I stumbled across this, I said, there's no way this is real. Right. But it was written in a scientific journal. And then there's pictures. So, so you can see for yourself. And the fact that she developed this to not only straighten her spine through breathing, but then taught it to hundreds, even thousands of women to do the same. There's x-rays of these women, there's pictures. And so for, for decades and decades, she was derided by the medical establishment in, in Germany. They, they told her, you can't, you're not a therapist, you're not a doctor, what are you doing? No, stop it. But she kept doing it. And at the end of her life, after doing this for 40 years, the German government gave her a medal for her contributions to medicine. So sometimes it takes a little while. And I kept finding the same exact story. I was not looking for this story. But all of these, not all of them, several of these breathing researchers kept, this is what kept happening to them. And when they died, their research was gone. It was never disproven. It just disappeared. It was so frustrating after a while. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you talk about so many of those stories in your book. I mean, they're really mind-blowing. I kind of want to go back to some of the, the the things that you did to yourself because you, again, like you really went to great lengths. And I, I mean, we're just, we could just bounce around and edit it however we want. But I, I feel like what was so interesting to me was, you know, around sort of like the orthodonture in, in, in this country and, and just sort of Evolution of our taking it back to our ancestors and getting you know getting the full story from the beginning and and how we arrived at this place we are now, which is just like crooked teeth, small jaws, and the rest, and and the and the consequences of that our health. I mean, it was just fascinating uh, subject. Yeah. So what what happened was about three hundred four hundred years ago, our mouths started getting smaller and smaller and smaller so small that our teeth no longer fit. So they start growing and crooked. This is the first time in human history that this happened on a mass scale. If you think about it, it's just mind-blowing because I had learned in, in biology classes, anthropology classes, uh, you know, that evolution meant progress, that we're just getting stronger, we're getting taller, we're getting fitter. Totally not true. <laughs> if you go out into a city right now, you are not looking at, at progress in the, in the human body. If you look at the list of diseases, you know, 30, 40% of the population now obese, 10% has diabetes, 10% has, this is, this is not progress. We've, we've changed in ways that are not advantageous to our health at all. And our breathing has taken one of the biggest hits. And to see this for yourself, just look at ancient skulls. Uh, something I spent a long time doing. I never thought I would be looking at ancient skulls writing a book about breathing. But if you look at these skulls, I've gone to labs, I've gone to ancient burial grounds. They all have straight teeth. Perfect. It's so creepy and strange that these ancients, all of our ancestors, yeah. perfectly straight teeth. And look at the modern mouth, look at my mouth, look at anyone's mouth, you know, around here. And there's a good chance they had braces, their teeth are crooked, they had headgear, all of that. So we have to use braces and headgear because our teeth grow in crooked and having that too small of a mouth makes for a smaller airway. Again, this is, this is simple geometry, uh, simple physics, uh, knowing how air enters the body. If you have a smaller hole, it's going to be more restricted. So that's one of the main reasons you know, for sleep apnea and snoring and other respiratory issues. Our mouths have grown so small, our airways are so small that we have to struggle just to get a breath in. We're the only animal to in the whole animal kingdom, beyond some breeds of, of dogs, like bulldogs and pugs who are highly interbred, but that, that have these problems. And, and again, it's such an obvious thing, and yet I never, ever thought of it. Uh, even the National Institutes of Health, check out their, their, 
the leading causes of crooked teeth, they say genetics or like tumors of the mouth. Doesn't make doesn't make any sense. Right. You can that right. that heredity is to blame for something when when we had perfect perfectly straight teeth before. Yeah, and it's so disturbing when I look at a bulldog. It's so obvious to me that they've been, you know, bred uh, to just this sickening degree. And you're like, ah, oh, we got to stop breeding these dogs. It's just like, yeah. what is going to happen to us? Well, we become the the equivalent of bulldogs. You, you look at a bulldog breathing, you look at a bulldog sleeping, and it's <laughs> look at fifty percent of the of the pop population in the U.S. sleeping. They're they're snoring. There's a good chance they're snoring. Look at a quarter of the percent of the population <laughs> they're suffering from sleep apnea. And this is so normal. It's so it's just considered normal now that we've accepted it. Like. I want my mom really wanted to, this is a stupid story I'm going to tell you anyway but no, my mom really no, wanted to go stupid on, stories go on <laughs> My mom wanted to go on a cruise my mom's You're old right, going on a cruise to Alaska I'm like oh god I don't want to go on a cruise but it's your mom and you go on a cruise right So they literally were telling people as people were going onto this cruise ship it's like Okay, put your CPAPs over here oh and you put God. your luggage over. They had a separate thing oh for CPAP and every person on that boat had their separate CPAP thing. Yeah. And and they were just like this this is how it is. You know, in the cruise cruise world, I would I would think that probably 90% of the people there had sleep apnea and if you look at the science behind sleep apnea, this is one of the most injury this will destroy you. So yeah. CPAPs are great. They're this fantastic Band-Aid. They do nothing for the core problem. Of Can sleep you define just a CPAP, what it, what it actually stands oh, for? Sure, sure. So sleep apnea is different than snoring. Sleep apnea is when you choke on yourself. You asphyxiate yourself on your own body. And it sounds like this. <laughs> so people do this all night. And when you're choking on yourself, you're in the state of stress. So your cortisol spikes, your adrenaline spikes, blood sugar goes up. And this is why sleep apnea can cause diabetes. Who would have thought our breathing could cause diabetes? There you go. CPAPs are these machines that force air. It's like a terrestrial scuba tank, right? It forces air into your body. This is where we're at, everybody. This is humanity. Uh, we have to hot, wear. It. By the way, going to bed with a spouse wearing a CPAP—that's that's the sexy time formula. <laughs> yeah, and and again, I want to make something very clear: CPAPs are total lifesavers for people yeah. with sleep apnea. These things do do miraculous jobs. They're doing nothing for the core problem of sleep apnea, which right. is a mouth too small for your face. Right, and that's I think a lot of what we spend we spend so much time talking about in this, you know, in this podcast and in this world in general like we've gotten really good at treating problems. CPAPs are great for people who need them, but you know, and and pharmaceuticals and meds are great for people who need them, but we're doing so little as a culture to actually address the root issue and that's, you know, certainly our mission being wellness people and our you know, ourselves and it's it's just amazing that even something as simple as breathing actually does need to be corrected and fixed and addressed and it can be which is the craziest part and you know i think somebody would say well it's not like you're going to change you know evolution from one generation to the next by adjusting your breathing i'm like actually if you're reading the book you can change your own yeah you you can change your own and and you will so so that's that's a known if if you're looking at someone's mouth if you just say it's hereditary Everyone in my family has crooked teeth. They have too small of a mouth. They have snoring. They have sleep apnea. You can willingly affect your mouth size, even in when you're old in adulthood. So this is especially effective when, when you're young. And that's what they're finding. Starts at infancy, breastfeeding. But after that, it, it goes into uh, eating hard and re- regular whole foods. Eating regular. Isn't it? What a concept. Eat uh, regular so foods. Chewing, yeah. what a concept. Well, actually yeah. chewing your food. So, Talk about so, the soft foods, yeah. And, and it, if you can't do those things, now there are procedures to help expand the mouths of, of kids, uh, which I know that sounds brutal to a lot of people. They work wonders and will actually affect how they look later on. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's tons of people doing these. And 
what I found, you know, it's aesthetics, very important. But uh, what's way more important, when you help expand that mouth, you expand the airway. So you improve their breathing. And that's really the secret sauce behind all this. So you did one of those crazy retainers too, right? Yeah. You know, I had seen so many case studies of, of people who had had massive transformations to their airway health, really improved their breathing. Their faces changed as well. So numerous, numerous case studies. And, and again, that the science was very clear on this. But as a journalist, I wanted, you know, I could use a lot of help here. Uh, I could use a larger airway. Who, who couldn't? Uh, because I had had all of those, those problems uh, growing up with mouth breathing and braces and extractions. So I did this for a year. I wore an expanding device every night. It goes on the roof of your mouth and it just very gently expands the upper palate. I know that seems gnarly. It's really not. If you have a clean thumb, don't do this with some dirty COVID thumb, but you can put it up on your upper palate and you can feel this suture. Mm -hmm. So there is a crack in your upper palate that can actually spread apart at virtually any age. So you can expand your mouth. When you expand your mouth, you help to expand your airway. And you also build bone in your face, which is so bizarre because we're told you can only lose bone after 30. Wrong. Uh, and I showed that in my own body with CAT scans before and after. I, I grew all this bone in my face. Like within a, a couple months, my father-in-law was just like, dude, what? whoa. He's a pulmonologist and he he did not believe any of this. And I showed him the, the science. I showed him the data and, and he is, uh, his mind was blown and he's a little bummed. He's learning about it now and didn't learn about it 40 years ago when he was in med school. I mean, how humbling for him. <laughs> it's like, you know, that's a lot of information. I mean, that's like a mind blowing realization to think like we have been told, yes, and especially women, like you're going to lose all this bone density, especially at the age of 60. And, you know, you're talking about this expander that can actually increase your, your shape, size of your mouth, bone density, all the rest. Ideally, it's used, I would assume, like at the you know, younger ages because you're a little bit more, uh, you know, malleable or whatever. But, you know, to learn that you can actually gain bone density, increase your bone density. How much did you just like the actual size? How did, how was it measured? I, I gained five pennies worth of bone in my face in a single year. Like a stack of pennies. <laughs> yeah. That's like, a small amount. Oh, it looks like an inch. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's insane. And that's spread throughout your face because the, the human body is always seeking balance. Nature seeks balance. There isn't a gene for asymmetry, right? but there's a lot of genes for symmetry. So it goes where it's needed. This is how stem cells work. And the, the really cool thing about all of this, beyond that, which is cool, is, is that my airway health, uh, the before and after scans of my airway are, are m- massive improvements, about 15 to 20% in, in a year. So anyone can do this. Uh, and there's a lot of people doing this for snoring and sleep apnea. They no longer snore. They no longer have sleep apnea. After they wind their mouth, duh, of course they don't because they have a larger airway. So, so it's not too much of a, of a leap of logic. Yeah, and it seems like we're so convinced that the only reason people have sleep apnea is because they're overweight. Yeah. Right? Certainly ties into it. So, so to be clear, like the more, the heavier you are over, over the weight you should be, the higher your BMI, the more of an increased chance you're going to have of sleep apnea because you're, you're gaining fat around here. It tends to clog the airways. But it's the same thing with weightlifters. If you see these, these dudes out at Venice Beach, they're all slicked up. They're all lifting weights. You, you think that this is the pinnacle of human fitness. These guys die in their 40s and 50s all the time because they can't breathe because there's way too many muscles around here, which is why they're they take this position. If you look at these guys walking around, they crane their heads out because that's how you can open your airway. So it's fascinating yeah. stuff. And that's the same thing we're kind of starting to do with our 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 like text neck, right? Yeah. Like what was it the death posture is what we, we, we called it in your book? <laughs> yeah, I had to take out uh I, I heard it was the Zuckerberg death posture because right. Mark Zuckerberg uh is is a great example of this. I'm a pretty good example of it as well. But we all it's are. When, when you have such problems breathing that you have, when you crane your neck out, you think about someone 
administering CPR to someone, what's the first thing they do? They put their hand behind open their neck, up. open it out. And so we're all kind of in this posture now. Uh, it's so bad for us for a number of reasons. The, the spinal cord is, is bent, so that can exacerbate uh, migraines. It can cause cognitive problems. It can cause uh, lower back issues because your head is very heavy. And now that it's out here, you have to strain. So again, not a lot of controversy, but you go go around and look in, in any city or basically anywhere and people are doing this all, all the time. So. Um, could we just go back to the apnea thing for one second? Uh, can you actually define, because it was really terrifying when I learned uh, the sort of, the, the true definition when you're clinically you know, diagnosed with apnea and the difference between just being like a horrible snorer and someone who's literally having like, multiple mini heart attacks over the course of, you know, the evening. Like, what is this? Do you know what the, I mean, I, you know. Yeah. So, so what they do is they take something called an AHI. It's apnea hypoapnea index. And if you have an AHI, uh, which means you are suffering from an apnea event more than five times an hour in each of those events are 10 seconds long. So that is... So you need five of those. Then doctors will say, okay, you have sleep apnea. Here's your CPAP. Let's, let's get you something. But I was just talking to Dr. Stephen Park at Albert Einstein Medical School, knows more about sleep apnea than, than anyone on the planet. He said, if you go in and have 40 apnea events per hour, but they're nine seconds each, you don't have medically diagnosed sleep apnea. So that person suffering from 40 apnea events per hour is completely wrecked. They can't do anything. Their immune system is in the gutter. Their cognitive scores are, they can't do it, but they, according to this metric we've created, they don't have a problem. So Stephen Park goes even deeper. And this is something Christian Guillemot at Stanford studied for 50 years, something called upper airway resistance syndrome, where you don't even suffer from sleep apnea or snoring, but you're, there's just some resistance in your breathing that can have huge downstream effects, almost sometimes to, to the same level of having sleep apnea as far as neurological issues, metabolic issues. So this is a huge public crisis right now. And 80% of people with moderate to severe sleep apnea are undiagnosed. So. And so, yeah, wow. And it sounds like basically it's all sort of the root is like if you can't breathe properly, it just is causing inflammation. And then that inflammation is just taking you down every other path you could possibly go down or exacerbating whatever you already have. <laughs> so, how do we discover if we have just at night? Because I suspect, according to my husband, my dear husband, uh, that I occasionally snore. I don't actually believe him, but. I don't know, like, it is, how can you actually test it aside from just, like, what do you do? Get a, um, what are some sort of tools that we can use to sort of identify something that's not so far gone? And then what are some maybe, like, super easy ways while you're sleeping to address milder, you know, uh, snoring habits? That could so be I don't want to get into any marital stuff don't here. Do it. Don't do it. <laughs> no. I might be giving your husband a little ammo with this one. So right, blame me. But you know what I would do tonight is I would get your phone and I would download something called Snore Lab. They have a free version. They have a version you can pay for. It's like five bucks or whatever. And you put your phone beside your bed, okay? And you just leave it on. And throughout the night, it is recording you. And it is going to send you in the morning a graph. And an audio file. So you can oh go God. through that graph. It'll show you where you're snoring. And you can hear for yourself how bad you're snoring. You can hear if your husband's right or not. So that, that might be... I uh, hear that he's right. Okay. Yeah, I know. That's why I don't want to get into this. But if he is right, yeah. and of course he's not, right? You, you don't snore. No, no. But, but if, this, if this app shows you... There are other apps that do this. I like that one. That's the one I use. You can use other ones. That's, that's fine. The first thing I would do is to start taping your mouth at night. And I know right. that that seems super sketchy. It seems super sketchy to me when I looked on YouTube and saw all these bozos 
making these tape goatees and all this other crap until I heard about it from uh, the doctor of speech language pathology at Stanford, who's the top of her field. She said, oh yeah, I prescribe this to all my patients uh, and, and including kids, Dr. Mark Burheny, really well-known guy for 30 years. He's been prescribing this. There's huge measured changes in sleep quality. And all it is, uh, this is not, I'm not at my house. So my, my buddy here has a little uh, masking tape. I wouldn't use masking tape. I would use some 3M hypoallergenic tape. It's 3M micropore tape, but all you need is a little teeny piece of tape. See yeah. that people you not need a fat, like Pulp Fiction, like hostage situation thing. You need a little piece of tape. You're going to look like an idiot, but you're going to look worse if you're snoring your whole life and are suffering from health problems. So take it off with your tongue. Does that look threatening to me? I don't think so. This completely changed things for me. And I've gotten hundreds of emails of people who have been snoring for decades, even with with light or moderate sleep apnea, which really blew me away, who say that they no longer suffer from these problems with a teeny piece of tape. And they are so pissed off that no one has told them this before. So I would be pissed. Um, That is just some, that's, that's a shitty thing to realize late in the game. But the only reason I don't think I sleep with my mouth open uh, is because I grind my teeth and I clench my jaw and I sleep with a night guard because I'm that bad. And I have since I was, you know, teenager. What, like, is, is there any kind of difference? I assume a large portion of the population grinds their teeth or clenches their jaw, particularly when they're asleep. I don't know if they're all lucky enough to wear night guards because those are super sexy too. But I mean, is there any benefit to that just by nature of the fact that you, I don't know, I, maybe you weren't automatically keeping your mouth closed the whole no, time. No, I was going to say for me, actually, that was one of my questions. I sleep with a mouth guard for grinding as well, but that actually, I had to stop because it was drying me out because my, I, it's a specific kind of mouth guard. It looks more like kind of like a boxer's than like a little tiny delicate piece of plastic. And I can't close my mouth when I sleep. And I don't like that because I think otherwise I do sleep with my mouth closed. So, I mean, what are we supposed to do with this whole... And we are now a nation of, of grinders, mostly because of the president, but whatever. So like, how do, we, how do we kind of like reconcile these things? We're creating issues with our jaw on one hand, and then we're making them worse, trying to fix them. Yeah. So mouth guards work. There's many different kinds of mouth guards. There's some for sleep apnea that pull the jaw forward. You know, if you're grinding your teeth, it's great to have some protection in there in your mouth. But what one thing that I learned that I don't, I think is is pretty understudied and underacknowledged is when you have a mouth guard like that. Think about when you're stressed. Okay, think about a boxer. You're clenching both sides at the same time. Okay, this is a stress response. Can spike cortisol because you're you're ready to go. Think then about chewing like a carrot or something really tough. You go from one side to the other. That is a parasympathetic response that that elicits. So because when we're eating, we calm ourselves down so we can digest better. So there's some interesting research going on right now showing that if you get a bite guard that is raised on one side, it can trigger that parasympathetic rest and relaxation response. Instead of throughout the night, be going grinding away and spiking stress responses in your body. So so that was the thing I wore, had that little bump on the back. So whenever I clenched my jaw, it would only clench on one side, which my body would recognize as something that should be relaxing. And they believe that that's why you can't grow bone. Like when there's, there's too much cortisol in your body, it's hard for you to grow. It's hard for you to heal. And that, that inhibits bone growth, so which is one of the reasons why kids with sleep apnea and have other sleep problems or breathing problems have growth problems. So by putting yourself, keeping yourself calm and relaxed, you can help your body to restore better. I want to be totally clear with everyone. This is an evolving area of research, but the basis of that makes perfect sense to me. And I, I saw the benefits myself. Yeah. Can well, you that's well, just for, for people who are listening and do actually grind their teeth and do sleep with a, 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 a night guard, there is a type that I have that doesn't allow your teeth to touch. And it only covers the first, like, 
five teeth on the top only. So it's leaving a space. It's actually... Can you close your mouth with it? You can close your mouth, yeah. yeah. But you can't, you're, you cannot clench your jaw shut. Right. I'm calling Dr. Leliev again. Call Dr. Leliev. <laughs> um, wait, so going back to what you said about the sympathetic and parasympathetic, because uh, that is, you know, I find fascinating. And, and we talk about it in, you know, in meditation and in just general kind of breathing practices. But there was a, a good deal in the book on that sort of single nostril breathing that I found really fascinating because it's not just about a relaxation technique. It's like you were saying how it actually one side can help, help improve digestion. And so can you, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think it's just, it's stuff that people don't know and it's something that's so easy to implement immediately. Sure. So anyone that's been to a yoga class, there's a good chance you've done a little alternate nostril breathing either before and after. This isn't just a placebo effect that's, that's happening to your body when you're breathing this way. There's been 20 years of studies showing that the pathway through which you breathe air, either the left nostril or right nostril, will have a measurable physiological effect to, to your body, which, which is fascinating that yogis have been doing this for 1,500 years, probably longer than that. But the, the gist of this is that when you breathe through your left nostril, this is more of a relaxation response, okay? It's a calming response. Your heart rate's going to go down. Blood pressure's going to go down. It's associated with cooling of your body. And they've found that left nostril breathing is more closely linked to right function of the brain. And the right function, this is super confusing, I know. Right function of the brain is associated with more creative tasks. Like left-handed people. Yeah, and, and I don't know if you ever saw the Jill uh, Bolte-Taylor, I believe that's her name, um, Stroke of Insight, where she lost function of the left side of her head and she was like, oh my God, the world is beautiful. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's a great uh, extreme version of just having the right side of your brain t- tuned on. I'm going to tape my right, no way, I'm going to tape my left nostril shut and only breathe. Wait, did I tape your right one shut? Right. You want to balance. You want, to, you want to balance that. There was a study, speaking of that, and now, now you've really got me riffing here, at, at UCSD where they found this woman who had serious uh, schizophrenia. And she was seeing uh, hallucinations all the time. And they noticed she was so left nostril dominant, they hypothesized that she was just triggering the right side of her brain all the time. They had her switch to balance out and the hallucinations almost disappeared just by that. That's an N1 study. It doesn't mean too much, but the fact that it was done at UCSD, I think is pretty interesting. So the right nostril is associated with heat. It's associated with stimulation. Blood pressure is going to go up. Heart rate is going to go up. So so you can game this and there's what, like 4,000 different ways of doing alternate nostril breathing. But the point for most of these isn't just to calm you. It's not just to activate you. It's to reset your brain, reset your body, rebalance you. Because you don't want to be sleepy and chilled out all the time. You want that balance. Sympathetic response is really important to be able to turn that on. You mm-hmm. know, But so was parasympathetic. So to establish that balance is, is exactly what those breathing techniques do. So interesting. And can you talk, I mean, because there are so many, so many different breathing techniques, but I feel like you know, between Wim Hof and what you're describing, it's all sort of, they all kind of overlap somehow. But can you talk a little bit about just the the timing? Because I, I feel like I often play with my, you know, like box breathing, or do I like hold for five, release for five, uh, you know, 5.5. It's like, how, how long do you do it? But, you know, and is there any benefit to pausing in between, meaning like holding at the top or at the bottom? and what is the ideal number or count? So one simple response to that is yes. So there's benefits to all that stuff. Yeah. And this is what I thought was so confusing once I really started getting into this world. It's like the slow Buteco breathers are saying, no, no, don't ever do Wim Hof. Uh, that's hyperventilation. You don't want to do that. But there's obvious measurable benefits to doing pace breathing, intense breathing. And we, we know that. It's very clear. And then the, the really heavy breathers are like, no, no, don't, don't do that other stuff. But they're all doing the same thing. They're trying to bring the body back into balance. So as far as what works for me may work differently for you. And that's why I try to focus on this book. Instead of going into the minutia of 
here are the 400 different ways of breathing. What are the overarching goals of each of these things? Then you can choose what method works best. So we know that slow breathing is effective because most of us breathe too much. We breathe way too much air. We breathe way too often. And that causes a lot of undue wear and tear on the body. So when you're breathing shallow and you're breathing right into the chest, all you're doing is bringing air into all of these areas that gas exchange can't happen in. So you have to breathe more because this is a very inefficient place, the top of the chest is, top of the lungs are, to, to participate in gas exchange. So by breathing deeply and fewer breaths, you're breathing so much more efficiently. And an, an analogy I used in the book was like, imagine you're like rowing a boat across a lake, right? So you can take a bunch of really choppy, short strokes. You'll get there, but they really pale in comparison to taking these extremely fluid, slow strokes. Well, you'll get there, but you'll get there faster. You'll get there using much less energy and much less wear and tear on your body. So that's a really roundabout way of saying uh, more tools in the toolkit. I'm a big fan of, but the way I organized them in the book was here are the benefits of slow breathing. Here are the benefits of breathing less. Here are the benefits of breathing more on occasion. Here are the benefits of, of holding your breath. Mm-hmm. So all of those are very effective. Yeah. yeah. I did like that at the end of the book, you have so many different techniques mapped out because I think it's, it's great. It's actually like a user's manual now for people. And it's the simplest thing in the world to just do some experiments. But I mean, kind of dovetailing off of what Zoe said, we've spent a lot of time, we've talked to a lot of both sleep experts and meditation folks and it seems that the common kind of accepted practice there is that as long as the exhale is longer than the inhale, that is bringing you into that kind of state of relaxation. But I wasn't necessarily seeing as much of that in your writing. Um, it, it seemed more kind of balanced. It's like six in and six out. I mean, do you have a position on that? It depends on what you want. Before right. I go to sleep, I'm exhaling more than I'm inhaling because the longer you exhale, the more you're going to relax yourself. And you can see this right now. You can place your hand on your heart and you can take a breath in to about three and exhale to about eight. Mm-hmm. As you exhale, you're going to feel your heart slowly beating, slower, slower, slower. So you can use these different levers of inhaling and exhaling to put your body into different mental states and different physical states. If I'm breathing in, if I'm inhaling more than I'm exhaling, I'm going to be stimulating my body. I'm breathing faster, I'm going to be stimulating more and more and more. So uh, another technique that I use is 478 breathing, made famous by Dr. Andrew Weil. That's inhaling to a count of four, holding for seven, exhaling for eight. And if you think about what's going on there, you're like, okay, I'm inhaling for four, but then three quarters of the time, you're either holding your breath or you're exhaling. Guess what's going to happen? You're going to become more relaxed. Mm -hmm. But you don't always want to be more relaxed. Sometimes you want to be focused, um, which is why you can breathe at that about five to six seconds in, five to six seconds out. That focuses you and it balances you. And it balances your nervous system. It balances your thoughts. So if I'm working on a task, that's how I want to be breathing. I don't want to be exhaling too much because I'm going to tend to get a little drowsy. If I want some energy, I'm going to be breathing... I'm going to be breathing very, very quickly, and I'm going to be inhaling more than I'm exhaling. So again, there's there's dozens and dozens of techniques you can use to do this, but they're all uh, like rotating. They're all uh, variations on the same theme. Yeah, um, I'm just and, like hyperventilating. Whatever ones you want, you know. I know. I'm like picturing you, that guy in the corner, and like, what's he doing over there? Like, oh, he's just he's just energizing. Don't worry, <laughs> just getting ready for a run. Um, well, that actually, I do have a question on that. Sorry to cut you off, but uh, exercise, because this is a big one. Wait, wait, before we go to exercise, there's one yeah. if, wait, just one more on, on this breathing thing. Because as so, I, I don't know if this has anything to do with anything. I hope it does. But um, when I'm practicing a lot of these different techniques, um, whatever the timing mm-hmm. is, I don't know if this is psychological or what is the physiological thing that's happening. And I, I know you're not a doctor, but I feel like you'll probably know the answer to this. I will often like start to yawn. I'll just like in the middle of whatever, whatever it is, if it's box breathing, if it's just like an equal, you know, even exchange, I'll just like 
I don't know if I'm panicking because somewhere in the back of my brain, I think I'm just not getting enough oxygen and I'll just have to like physically, you know, take in this like huge gulp of air and just start yawning. I'm like, I don't think that's because I'm relaxed and sleepy. <laughs> so we, we normally yawn when CO2 rises in our bodies. When we start getting sleepy, okay, we get sleepy and our breathing slows down. And it slows down to a certain level that we, we sense this, this rise of CO2. We think we need more oxygen. So we go... <sighs> what that's doing is resetting our respiratory pattern. And what Dr. Andrew Huberman has found at Stanford, he's been studying this stuff for the past couple of years. I was just talking to him about this, is that we can choose to yawn. And when we choose to, to yawn, it resets us and it's, it's extremely relaxing. So if you see a dog or even a lion or other animals out in the wild, right before they conk out, they go. And then they conk out. So you uh, right now, uh, you, you mentioned that you've had, uh, you feel anxious sometimes. So your threshold for CO2 is probably pretty low, uh, as is mo- most of ours, our, our threshold for CO2. So the higher that threshold gets, there's a likely a chance that you are not going to be yawning as much because your body is not going to associate that increase of CO2 with, with, it, with being tired or not having enough oxygen. And a great way to reassure you and everyone else that you're getting enough oxygen is just put on a pulse oximeter. Mm-hmm. Uh, the new Apple Watch has a pulse oximeter on it, which I think is so amazing. Uh, but other rings and other things you can wear. And you're going to notice, I think you'll, you'll be surprised, as I was certainly surprised when I started doing this, my oxygen levels are never going down. So even when I was exercised, I was like, I can't breathe. That trigger to breathe is not dictated by oxygen. It's dictated by an increase of CO2. And this is something almost everybody gets wrong. And you can see this for yourself when you're looking at your oxygen and it's locked in at 97 and you feel this need to breathe. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's a neat little trick to 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 use. And the more you do these breath holds, the more you do slow breathing, the more acclimated you're going to be to higher levels of CO2, which is very healthy for your body. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a big misconception around CO2. So, okay. I do want to ask about exercise because now that, again, it's like once I've read this, I can't unlearn this information. So I'm conscious. I'm like relatively new to running thanks to COVID. And I did actually already, even before reading the book, I noticed that just in doing some experimenting, you know, running to like the rhythm of the music, I was constantly doing like four, you know, a breath in for four, you know, for four steps and a breath out for four steps. And one day I sort of switched it and I was like, I'm going to try to like, not necessarily do four and four, but just see how long it goes. And immediately that day I did a longer distance and I was not exhausted. But that was before I was aware of like nasal breathing specifically. So now I'm trying to only breathe through my nose when I'm running and fucking hard. And so the first question is like, a lot of snot. Oh, you're getting a lot of snot. So much snot. Running with snot is like my new thing. Like that's what happens. Yeah. Um, how long are we supposed to actually be able to train in order for that to just become, you know, much easier, but also when you're not running, but like weightlifting or doing something that requires a ton of exertion and you see these, you know, people in the gym, they're like really breathing out. Are they also supposed to be using only their nose? Yeah. I've been getting this question a lot and, and the answer is yes. And I just talked to Dr. John Duyar, who has been a top trainer for NBA teams, Olympians, tennis stars, whatever. He's been doing it for about 40 years. So he has been studying the effects of nasal breathing on his athletes. And it is, it is not subtle what happens once you convert to nasal breathing. You have more energy, your performance goes up, your recovery is cut in half. Because what happens when you're breathing through your nose, your heart rate tends to be lower at the same level of performance or endurance. So guess what happens? And this has been measured in innumerable studies. So guess what happens if you're exerting Uh, a good deal of of energy, but your heart rate is lower and you're using less energy, then you can go even faster, even further for longer. Mm -hmm. And and that's what athleticism is all about, right? 
So, and it's another reason why recovery is so much easier because you're not putting so much undue wear and tear on your body. So he said that his personal transition to nasal breathing took him about six months, which you're like, no one's going to do this. Six, no way. Which is why so many people have written me and said, bro, I tried this for two days. There's a lot of snot. This is, this can't be right. I was like, you know, I put 500 references in the book. <laughs> go, go read the references. Go read the books that I was, and, and all of these studies. So there's, there's no argument that nasal breathing is the optimum way, especially in, in endurance, especially in athletics, but it just totally sucks to get there. So what you're going through is completely natural, but the more you breathe through your nose, and if you use sleep tape at night, you're training yourself for at least a third of your life to just be breathing through your nose. The more your nose is going to open up, the more it's going to get acclimated. So one thing, uh, some training wheels for you that I've found was really effective is breathe right strips. What they do, they go right here on the bridge of your nose and they just open up your nostrils a little bit. Also, these little inserts called mute and they go in your nose. I know it's a little weird, but they open up your nostrils. It's so weird that we're developing all these products so that we could be the way we were a few hundred years ago before we screwed ourselves up. But that's, that's where we are. But those, those two things, one or the other, they can increase airflow by like 30% and can really help you get over that hump. And after a while, you probably won't need them. But the snot, the complaints, the crankiness, <laughs> yeah, it's, all, it's, it's totally natural. It comes with it. I had the exact same thing, but you get over it. And, and you will, the, the benefits... You, it sounds like you're already feeling them. You're like, wow, I just did that run and I feel refreshed. That's what it's all about. That's what fitness is. And that's what you want your body to be in, that, that state of efficiency and coherence. Right. You blow out your knee, Erica, then you're screwed. And there's nothing. Yeah, I know. All the I she, doesn't seem too, she doesn't seem too stoked about what I just told I'll her. I'll breathe through it. I'll breathe <laughs> through my knee injuries. Yeah. Um, so i so uh, speaking of exercise, and I know I like really, we could just talk to you for a very long time, but exercise, weight loss, I thought this was so fascinating uh, when, when you equated uh, the sort of weight loss and where it actually comes from um, and the exhaling more and all this. Can you, can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. So I had always been told that when we lose fat, we burn it off. Right. I mean, most people have been told that. And most people, even in the medical community, thought that as well. You're losing fat, you're burning off. But but what does that mean? Things just can't burn off. Like energy has to be transferred to, to another place. And so this researcher, this physicist in Australia, Meerman is is his name, that equation didn't make sense to him. He lost 30 pounds. So where where does my fat go? So it turns out that if you were to lose 10 pounds, eight and a half pounds of that comes out through your lungs. So we exhale. Our lungs are the weight-regulating organ of our bodies. The other pound and a half will come out through through sweat and through water vapor and then through waste. So that's where your fat's going. And you need oxygen to burn fat, which is why you don't want to be in this anaerobic state for too long where you're just burning glucose. You need oxygen. And that's another reason for breathing more slowly, breathing in line with your metabolic needs, breathing through your nose is because you're going to be able to upload more oxygen that way and hypothetically burn more fat. There's some interesting stories about how they were training people to use uh, something, I mean, they call it by various names, nor morbaric hypoxia training is the latest name for it. It's just limiting your air to to having some, some air hunger while you're working out. And they found it was much more effective at burning fat. And if you look at the biochemistry of that makes perfect sense because your body has more available oxygen that way. So fascinating. So fascinating. I was just would never expect that. I have two more questions. Well, one okay. more yes. one two-part question about athletic performance and oxygenation. We're, you know, wellness people in the food world. So we often find um, dietary and nutritional protocols that address some of these issues. So I have done one experiment on myself and then read a lot about the other. Supposedly beets are kind of the vasodilators and help kind of oxygenate and get more air into the lungs before exertion. 
And then a little closer to home, because this is what our project is. I know where you're going with cordyceps mushrooms um, also supposedly have the same impact. Are you, do you know anything about this? And does it sound like complete just snake oil to you? I, I wish I could give you more context on that. What, what I do know about this, I don't know about shrooms and, and, and their abilities to do that. But I believe one of the functions, one of the reasons why beets are effective, and there's, there's been studies showing how effective they are for, for athletes, is because I believe, okay, this, I, I need to be clear uh, that, that, that we're just riffing here. I believe beets are one of the foods that can help increase nitric oxide. So nitric oxide is this amazing vasodilator. It plays an essential role in gas exchange, and it also interacts directly with viruses. So we produce a ton of nitric oxide in our noses, and that's why our noses are the first line of defense for getting sick. So don't mouth breathe, people. That includes when you're out jogging. Another reason you're going to have to just deal with that, that snot, but... I wish I had more info about the nutritional side of that, but uh, I'll be honest, I, I just don't. That'll be the second book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> talk about, about mushrooms. The breathing uh, <laughs> uh Okay, well, I guess we could, we could, you know, pause there. We'll call it a pause, just because maybe, you know, maybe there's a second conversation somewhere down the line about something else. But yeah, this is, I mean, I'm, you're like doing God's work, really. Truly. And I, 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 if we had to bottom line it, I mean, it's just shut your mouth, right? I, think. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> shut your mouth, breathe slowly. And, and to be clear, it's like, as a reporter, I had the easy job, right? I was able to go into these worlds, talk to these researchers, go to these labs, go to the medical libraries. The people really on the front lines of this stuff that, that should really be thanked are the researchers who have been working tirelessly on this for decades and just not getting a lot of respect. So to me, that's, that's the real prize at the end of this thing is to be able to get their research out. And this stuff can benefit everyone and it's, and it's free. So, so why not? Why not do it? Which is probably why we don't know that much about it is because there's that's, no money to be made. <laughs> and that is one thing that they all told me. And these are people at top institutions. They're like, of course, you're not going to be told to breathe well. You're going to bring down that America will no longer be open for business if yes. everyone gets healthy. So uh, that's what they said. That isn't my opinion. I'm not not that crass. But uh, I heard this from virtually every single doctor I talked to, which, man, is that depressing. But now that we have the power, we have the knowledge, we can help to fix ourselves with these simple hacks. Knowledge. Breath is power. James, thank you so much. This is unbelievably useful and fascinating. Thank you guys very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number. Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at us on social at HTW Podcast. You can also head to our website at hgwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.